Well, hi there. I'm Julie Van Warmer, and you're listening to Unshaken, a podcast of the Women of the Word Ministry of Christ the Word Church. Hey, just a couple things. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite directory and follow our Facebook page, Unshaken Podcast. And don't forget, you can email me anytime you want to with comments, questions, or suggestions at unshakenpsalm622 at gmail.com. That's always in our show notes. Now today we're actually going to go a little different direction. See, usually we listen to a talk on a topic directly related to living a Christian's life. Sometimes I'll interview someone on a topic that relates to that as well, but today we're actually going to listen to one woman's personal story of how her father loved her and cared for her during a time when she did not respond in love to him. It's actually a really good story and it is full of lessons about how our Heavenly Father in Heaven pursues us. So this talk was shared at the Regarding Him conference called Daughters of the King. Let's jump right in and listen as Jennifer Clark shares her story. So, my talk, my time with you today, um, is about being a daughter of the King. And you may, as I did a little bit, have some mixed feelings about the topic, the title of Daughter of the King. It's a nice title, right? And, but really kind of wondered, well, where are we going with all of this? So my time and what I've prepared are some thoughts on becoming a daughter and how the, daughter, how the father has pursued me and the process through it. If it's not the session you were hoping for, it's still time to sneak out. I will hardly even notice because I'm still looking at my notes here. So, Daughter of the King, what do you think of this title? How does it resonate with you? How does it settle with you? It may be, for some of you, um, perceived as a really pretty, feel-good title, and it's a good theme for a focus for women who are gathered together, kind of warm and fuzzy on a cold, cold autumn day. It's nice. It may even invoke some visions and memories of childhood as um, Melissa shared about her daughter would be excited about the whole theme. So it may bring you back to your childhood about dress-up, fairy tales, things like that. And in the culture of books and movies and childhood toys picking such grand fairy tale worlds, it may be easy for us to slip into that comfortable dream world. And you may go and have a thought process a little bit like this. Yes, why yes, I agree. Yes, I'm a daughter. And in fact, yes, I know I'm a daughter of the king. And if I'm a daughter of the king, then that must mean I am a princess. <laughs> and very quickly and easily, your thought train is out the station, roaring ahead into some preconceived, <laughs> distorted view of what a princess life is like. How this would be different, that would be different, everything would be pretty. I would be pretty, in fact, because all princesses are pretty. And altogether, forgetting about the king. Or perhaps you're on the other side, and the thought train in your mind goes in a different direction altogether. And you take no part in the idea of pink, lace, and frilly princess spots. You're a realist, after all. And fairy tales were never real, and you knew that. You may have been the girl who I like to poke fun at my sister. She was the one who always wanted to play school or library. You know how I had to check in every book in and out. And wouldn't play dolls with me. 
rather than all that princess stuff. So you may, in fact, sit here and appreciate the word picture of being a daughter of the king, but you're squarely grounded where you're at and about who you are, and you may, in fact, also be forgetting about the king. So let us again, I ask of you to think about this title and how comfortable you are with it. And I wonder, why at the core of some of us is the title Daughter of the King a little hard to wrap our minds around? The notion of being a daughter of the Most High. I suggest for some of us, in the quietness of our thoughts, as we think about it, there's a gnawing sense of unworthiness that we feel. Being of the daughter of the king is a concept that maybe, and for all of us, really is beyond our true understanding. A little too far-fetched. And I believe for any one of us to really adequately embrace the title of being a daughter of the king requires great faith. A faith that's beyond our feeling of worth at any given moment. Beyond feelings altogether. A faith that requires that we wrestle a bit with scripture. And it believes at the very core, all of what Melissa shared with, the scripture verses that she shared with about who the king was, all at the same time. There's no contradictions in scripture. Melissa, in fact, shared some of the same verses that I had written down. And so I'll share some additional ones that I had written down. And the truth of scripture in Romans shares that we have all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. In 1 Peter 2.24, Scripture tells us that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. His wounds, by his wounds, you have been healed. That again is 1 Peter 2.24. And then there goes on a couple other Scripture verses. Um, one that has just been resonating with me for the past several months as I have prepared. First Peter 2, 9, and we'll speak of this later in, the, in our time together. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So as we know more about scripture, as we hear it being read to us, we have to wrestle with it a bit. We have to come to terms with it. And by God's um, grace and giving us his spirit, we're able to get that understanding. And one truth that we have to come to face, in order for all of this really to tie together, for order, order for us to be a daughter of the king, we have been desired. We had to have been picked out of darkness and chosen. Chosen when we were actually opposed to God, as all of us were at one time without Christ. And to be chosen requires that we were had to have been bought. And this is a pretty heavy truth. If you bear with me, I would like to share a bit of my story, as some like to call it. My testimony of the king's faithfulness to me. A faithfulness that he has been gracious enough to show me over the years and reveal to me how he was there all along. Recognizing his hand in my life from a very young age. So the following is a colorful story. And it's ways that the father was revealed to me. And then at the end, his daughter's response. So the first section here is um, what you might see on your handout, which is the last page of the um, booklet that we have today. 
is kind of titled a chalk number two sharpie marks. So I brought some visuals, lots of visuals here today. So for years, I have always I've had a love of creating anything that was art related. My dad, um, from the time I mean I could always remember, he was always sketching, doodling next to the phone. You know, back when the phone was stationary in one location. You know, you would see a scattering of papers that had fancy sketches and doodles as he would be talking on the phone. And it was always kind of funny because it always seemed like it was this artist trying to get out of the the very um, formal structural engineer that he was. It's like these two contradicting little loves. So then it wasn't a surprise, I suppose, um, as years went by that I um, found that happy mix that met my desires of the two and I studied architecture in college. So to illustrate the following story that I have for you, I have chosen some various art tools and technical kind of drafting tools that I have been acquainted with over the years to illustrate and give some visuals to the story. Some of these specific tools may not be familiar to you. Some of them, I think, are pretty household items. And the use and the hope that I have is portraying um, so the tools and the results of their use, what the marks are that they leave and how they, they're different from one another. And my hope is to use these artist tools in illustrating a word picture and some visuals about how sin is written all over our lives, each one of us. So I'm sharing about God's work in my life, some that has already taken place and already been written and some that is still being written about me. So what is the story? that you are penning, do you think about the reality that your life is being written and it's being recorded and observed? What makes up your story? There are general elements that we all have in common. Then, of course, each of us has some of our own unique details. There are lead characters, there are supporting characters, there's various plots, mysteries, loves, losses that all make up our story. And the majority of the characters in the settings that do, that are in our story are not chosen by us, although from our vantage point, since we are the lead role, we think we've controlled it all, and that we've chosen every aspect of our story. And some of the supporting characters, though, are very much chosen by us, and they play a pretty influential role. But the story here that I'm asking you to think about is much bigger and deeper. It's not a tale and a story that we can make up picking up just where the action scenes are, the highlights, where we look good, the pretty scenery. It's the everyday and it's the mundane. It's the, it is, in fact, the very gut-wrenching real story with no polished scenes. And it records the very essence of our souls. It records our hearts, motives, and our intents. So, if you'll bear with me, I'm going to use my life as an illustration here. <laughs> so there are times um, and events in our lives, perhaps many things in our childhood, times and actions in our lives, that we may look back and think is kind of insignificant, harmless and incidental. And as adults, we still have these moments all throughout our daily lives. And at these times, we may tend to think that our story is really being written in chalk. Chalk, I think we're all pretty familiar with. Typically white, but comes in all colors, really. You know, it's edges, 
Um, as you see an example here on the board where it says king, the edges really can, um, they can get smudged, they can get blurry and faint. And they really can seemingly get washed away with time, right? That's why we let our kids make artwork all over our sidewalks and driveways because the rain will wash it all away. So chalk art really is quite the thing these days. I'm sure you've probably seen it. It's everywhere in advertising, <laughs> merchandise. You can walk into Hobby Lobby and see your, your favorite verse written all over, you know, something to hang on your refrigerator as if some old scribe sat there and knew that that was your favorite verse and he wrote it in this really fancy writing for you. You can even buy paint to paint anything in your house to make that a area for using chalk. So chalk is a fairly tame medium. Like I said, we give it to our children to draw with. It's generally safe on clothing and it washes away pretty easily. It's mostly non-toxic, I would assume, since we give it to our children. <laughs> As is a way that I think I viewed many of my actions and plots and people and characters that were in my life, from a young age even as an older adult, fairly non-toxic and easily erased away with time. Then slowly with the out-realizing it, my story was being written perhaps a little differently, making a little bit more impression, maybe with the lead of a number two pencil. So a number two pencil, this very household item, you know, you can get a nice sharp tip to it. It's a little sharper than chalk, a little more impressionable, and it's an instrument that doesn't quite fade away like chalk, or quite as removable. It takes a little bit more effort to remove. And it's fairly easy to view our recorded as history is being written with these kinds of an instrument. Leaves a good line, but the pink pearl eraser will do a trick in, in erasing it. I don't know if you all, I think the pink pearl eraser has been around for probably decades, I don't know, I mean centuries. It seems like it's been around forever. And this was a tool that my dad always had by his side. So the pink pearl eraser is, is great for pencil lead removing of all types. Cleans up pretty well, doesn't mess up your paper. Just hope that whoever was writing it didn't press down too hard like maybe your first grader did and leave the impression lines underneath on that paper. So this analogy might take the form as it did in my life with words and practices like, well, yeah, that was really bad, that was not good. I, I can pray for forgiveness, and I will work much harder next time never to do that again. Oh, I don't think anybody even saw me doing it. I think everything's okay. I can remove the marks pretty easily and move on. Pretty easy to change my trajectory at this point. Now, trajectory is a really fun word that I enjoy. I don't know why. It's something. But it's, um, you know, it's basically a path. It's, a, it's kind of a projected course an arrow will take once it, you know, comes out of the bow. And it's pretty hard to change a trajectory once it's left. And so when I'm thinking of things over the course of my life, you might think, well, that's pretty incidental. It's not going to set the course of my life at this exact moment. There are no permanent markings, right? I can erase these things. So in my life, there's lots of chalk. Not too bad, just a little messy. There's number two pencil marks. Ah, not too bad. I can erase that. But the illustration in my life, and I'm sure in yours, wouldn't stop here. I'm just getting started. There's more fantastic tools really to talk about. Perhaps this is a 188 count set of Prismacolor pencils. 
Now, Prismacolor pencils are not just your standard Crayola color pencils. These things are awesome. They're very, they may look like the normal thing, but they are not. They are worth every penny of these expensive little <laughs> They will leave a very bright, vivid mark. And so they're good for use of, in, in art. There's so many color options to use with color pencils. You can mix them together, you can use them by the same, you can mix contrasting colors, and you, you, know, you overlap them and to get, this, get a, a good effect, the hope you, that you wanted. And with the help of a good sharpener and um, very sharp details in color can be recorded with these. It's another trend I've noticed. Have you noticed this? Adults, you know, especially for women, coloring books. Have you noticed these in the stores? Mm -hmm. They're like quite the, quite the thing. I have yet to buy one really, but they're very, um, they're very enticing. I'd like to buy them and pull out my Prismacolors and sit there on a cold night and color, but I haven't done that yet. Maybe not this talk is done. I don't know. <laughs> They're so fun, and so were the many years of my life. Layers upon layers of life, and colorful sin. And it was in fact a double-mindedness that I had between things of God and things of this world. You see, I knew the Word, I knew the Church very well. I was blessed to be raised in a, in a godly home and parents who loved the Lord. I thought of myself all along as a young Christian, and I knew I was different. I prayed for salvation time and time again. Someone recently described his younger life as he reflected on it as knowing that he was God's, but that he was that disobedient child of God all along. And I think I could kind of relate to that. I always felt God's hand in my life. I was always challenged by sin and recognized it as sin, in fact. And I, was, I knew I was very different from many of the friends that I chose, and I related very well to the Christians that were in my life. But it was a constant juggle between two very different worlds. It was not for lack of effort and work on my part to be a Christian. I wanted his love and his forgiveness, his acceptance, his salvation. But I so desired the rest of the world also. If you've ever worked with Prismacolors, uh, the Prismacolor um, picture kind of on the end was a project I did when I was in high school with an art teacher. Um, and they were a lot of fun to work with. But she learned very quickly that the pink pearl eraser that I showed just really won't cut it in removing these colors, these layers, these vibrant marks. For the Prisma colors and the color pencils like that, what you have to invest in, and it's a big investment, let me say, is a, um, a needed eraser. I don't know if any of you have seen these or not. This is the needed eraser. It's similar to a, it's a nifty tool, it's similar to in texture to like a silly putty that your kids might have played with or you, you did as a child. So the kneaded eraser, and I say this is an, an investment kind of in a, is a joke. For years, um, as Christmas time would, you know, come near, my brothers and my sister and I would always ask our dad, because we really wanted to know this year, what, what, I really want to know what you would really like for Christmas, you yeah. know? And he would, you know, oh, I don't need anything. And then finally, he may say, year after year, oh, maybe just, maybe just a good new needed eraser. And I'm like, oh, Dad, you know. And if he finally maybe broke down as we got older and maybe started to make our own money, he would say, well, maybe a sheet of watercolor paper. You know, and then you realize, well, a needed eraser back then probably cost like 59 cents. You know, it's not, not that big of a sacrifice to buy. So this needed eraser... It's great for a great tool 
And it's required for work for like colored pencil because it can't just rub away at it. You actually have to kind of pat it over and over and over. And over time, slowly with a little work, with each dab, you can pretty much pull a lot of that color off. Take a lot of work, but it'll it'll draw out the color, and that's how you would remove the layers of colored pencil. So if we pause and think about this just for a minute, isn't this kind of similar to, and much like the many colorful sins that we have let wash over and color our hearts, they increasingly leave more impressions, more color, more of a taint. And in reality, those are baggage and pain that they leave behind. And it really takes to fully remove the effects of these sins and the layers, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Here's another tool that I have a great love for, and this is a mouthful. <laughs> it's a fine India ink tip technical drawing pen. And if anybody really wants to get, you know, on my good side, they would they would purchase me these little technical drawing pens. They're so fantastic. My husband learned this early on, and just about every Christmas in my stocking, I get new drawing pens. They're awesome. They come in different, you know, widths and that. And it's really nice if you can get that, like the finest tip out there, the smallest tip. My kids clearly know those pens are off limits. You are not allowed to touch them. <laughs> they are so fat. They're so fantastic because of the intrinsic detail that you can have etched into your paper, and they're permanent. You can rub and rub an eraser, any type of eraser, over them, and they won't fade away. They won't lose their 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 line. And it's a, that's a really good feature when you're trying to draw and construct something because when I would work on something and as a project, I would have all kinds of pencil construction lines that I have to get rid of. And that kind of ink just won't fade away. It's a fine thing in drawing and a good feature, but what another vivid picture of sin can be when we let it become comfortable in our lives and we allow it to reside in our hearts. The color of sin that we love so much soon becomes etched in detail with a fine line permanent ink. And it becomes etched in our hearts and it begins giving definition. It begins shaping us and defining us. For me personally, I can look back and I can see an area where this defining was happening. Beginning sometime in my mid-teen years for the next many years, it seemed like I could look back and I always had a boyfriend. They were all fairly long-lasting boyfriends, but the distinct feature that they all had in common was that not one, not one that I can remember, was a Christian. Not one, in fact, when my world was Christian. I lived as a Christian, was surrounded by Christians, my education was Christian, everything was Christian around me. Some of them, of these boyfriends, in fact, you know, began going to church. Of course they did because my parents wouldn't have allowed it otherwise. They began going to church in order for us to date. And let me just say, don't ever do that. That is so stupid. And I know, I know, I'm in a room of probably lots of moms and don't like the word stupid, but really stupid is about the tamest word we can come up with when we're talking about our sin and our decisions. There were fine India ink pen lines being etched all over my heart and my life, making very lasting marks. But, you know, those lines are little. That's why we like them. You know, from a distance, you can't really see them. You can hide that. 
as I would tell myself. So this brings me to the next tool, though, I want to introduce. And this tool, I believe, no doubt, is familiar to everybody at every level. And they're very similar to these fine, fine pens. And that's a nice stash of Sharpie pens and markers. Yes, the Sharpie. It can be very vivid and bright. In fact, that's what's the selling point. And what's the biggest selling point? Permanent. Permanent. Exactly. I don't think they have washable Sharpies. You know, it seems like a contradiction, right? So high up on a shelf is where these tools are needed. The Sharpie, it can bring such joy, right? And panic. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but if you ever walked into a room where there was just small children, you know, because it was loud, and you see a Sharpie without its lid. And there's this, like, panic sets in, and you find yourself in this, like, crazy slow motion, leaping, diving, arms flailing at the Sharpie, while you're also scanning the room to see, well, what happened to my walls, my couch, or anything else, right? So yes, high up on a shelf, if you have small children around or who may ever come into your home, um, is where Sharpies really should be. They're a fantastic tool in the right hands. That's why they're so loved for the right job, because they can leave a strong, lasting mark. But boy, can they really leave a mark. My husband um, came home several years ago with the biggest Sharpie I've ever seen in my life. Seriously, I mean... I tried to, to run to the store to find one, and this was not what he had years ago. This was, you can find it Lowe's, but the Sharpie he had seriously must have been, it looked like a regular Sharpie, but it was like 12, 18 inches. I mean, it was like the craziest Sharpie I've ever seen. And it's a type of Sharpie, I guess, that's used on construction sites, and in his case, it was marking up a roof. So that, you know, definitely could leave a mark, right? Like, that's a really fat that line can make a really substantial thick line and it's not going anywhere well as I grew out of my childhood my actions and my decisions you know they made more you know more serious more lasting as it is as you grow out of your childhood and I realized looking back that my heart was being written all over not with chalk not with the number two pencils lead and not from the bright, colorful Prisma color marks, but with a big old, bold Sharpie like I just showed you. I found myself, in fact, covered in Sharpie marks, sometimes with pretty Prismacolor illustrations surrounding it, but it was Sharpie unquestionably underneath it all. And I say this to illustrate the impression that the marks of, what the marks of sin can leave on our hearts. Chalky residue that leaves in our hands isn't harmless. In fact, it, on our hearts, it clouds our vision of God's holiness, his goodness to us, his love. Just as a black, broad-tipped sharpie is tough to remove, so are these marks of sin in our lives. They leave very lasting marks. So to get a little bit more personal in my testimony, my friend, I'd like to share, um, there was a time in my 20s, I was in college in, down in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where I was going to architecture school, and I started dating a man. He was older than I was. He already had a trajectory set in his life, a path that, and a life that he was committed to. And I quickly found myself moving in the direction of making decisions that would leave very lasting commitments on my part. 
And at some point in this relationship, and I've honestly tried to think about, you know, when this, the timeline of when these things happen, and by God's mercy, he's allowed me to really, that's kind of hazy in my mind, which is a good thing. But it was a time when I was kind of wavering back and forth with commitments, other commitments that I had, really everything else in my life. And something very big, yet subtle, happened. It was in the fall, as much as, much as I can remember, of 2000. I was weary of an ongoing struggle of something that was going on in the College of Architecture that I was at. And I just wanted to escape. I wanted to escape the reality, the, the responsibility. And this guy had recently moved out of state for a job. And so I decided to set out on a road trip to visit. And at some point during this trip, again, I'm not even recalling how because this was not a time of cell phones, um, my father got a hold of me somehow when I was there by phone, and he requested that I come home for a while. Very simple words, easy to glaze over. And I think I recall that I said that I would, but that went on for several days, three, four days as my car was packed each time that I was leaving the next morning and days went by, I had absolutely no desire to come back to Ohio. I was 20-something, and I liked really pretty much a lot of what was going on. My dad was 1,100-plus miles away, and I didn't and hadn't exactly been seeking his counsel much. I had no desire to go back to Ohio. There was a moment that I can recall in those days, though, considering for a moment and pausing and thinking that my confidence in the future was a little shaky, wasn't fully confident in the direction that things would be going. And my dad's words kept coming back to mind. They were simple words. And they were simple and profound because it was not a common approach by my dad at that time. And I realize now that at that time I was not actively thinking and realizing that I was choosing between two men I still, in fact, cared for the one, but I later realized that the Lord used that crossroads and those simple words in a big way. And it was, in fact, the beginning of me choosing one over the other, choosing between the risk and the unknown of a future with the one guy. Um, to looking forward and reflecting on the past of what I had seen as evidence of what had endured for years with my dad. Making easy decision in hindsight, and to you, many of who I don't know, easy to gloss over, right? But I think we can all think of times in our life and realize it's never easy to walk away from something. Much of what I knew of my parents was true faithfulness, everyday faithfulness to God and the King and to his word. It was a life that I can now, you know, label as a mundane faithfulness. I can see this as a, as a small step and small yet big step in how God was turning me towards Him. It was a level of surrender to Him by turning me towards my Father, who represented God and God's faithfulness to me. And I have to say, in all honesty, for a long time I felt very shut out by God. That Jesus was unattainable to me. It was. You know, it was in reach to all these other people around me, but yet my prayers seemed to go unanswered, and he was just out of reach. I knew what my dad had, and his closeness and loyalty to God was true. So, I believe it was late at night, and I 
came to a decision, I got in my car, and I drove, and it was many hours through the night, and I came home. So it was not a time of celebration or homecoming, and in fact, it was not an epic conversion story. In fact, it was rather quiet. I meshed back um, in with friends, friends who I had shared for years with my siblings, with my brothers and my sister. My brothers, during this time, were changing and growing spiritually. They were, along with these friends, discussing things that were, on one hand, very familiar with to me, and yet so totally beyond me. I visited a church with my younger brother. I probably embarrassed him, but he was very good about it. And I met a young pastor, his wife, and their little kiddos. And they asked lots and lots of questions. Even their kiddos asked questions. But they were kind questions, and they were sincere questions. This pastor, he used words and overall themes in his sermons that were totally beyond my college education and, and left my head spinning a bit. I was intrigued, and I was curious about how it all meshed with what I knew growing up and what it, how it meshed with the Bible itself. So I began reading, and then at some point I went even further, and I actually said yes, getting up really early uh, once a week and meeting with a group to read and discuss an old, famous theologian's work. Um, you know, this was a man who studied God's Word and, and then wrote books on his understanding of Scripture. <laughs> Not exactly what I thought I would be doing in my 20s. But what I did find was that I became very quickly knocked over by how very little I knew about God, how very little I had failed to understand in the depths of my sin. And because I didn't understand the depths of my sin, I could never really understand the severity of my state that I was in. And then I, in fact, couldn't really know who God the Father was, what Jesus had sacrificed for, and what he had won and accomplished. It was all so woven together, so, but yet so completely contrasting. This was a time where the Father was revealed to me, and the King, who is the Father of all fathers, was being revealed to me. It was the King himself. And it was during this time that I came face to face with the fact that whether I went back and looked at my childhood, at what I considered the chalky sins of my life, or to the colorful sins of my 20s, it all, together, bound together, or just one simple chalky mark, kept me separated from God. That that seemingly slightest chalky sin in a sense kept me from God as much as the dark, permanent, sharpie marker did. I was entirely dead in my sins. And in truth, I came to realize that I hated God. That if I didn't love him and serve him, that I truly hated him. I can't serve two masters. As we all did at one time, either now, if we are not in him, or we were at one point before the Father turning our hearts of stones towards him and opening our eyes to him. Well, the Father did this for me. I could never, I could never choose him in his goodness. All the years that I tried to, I never, I never could. I couldn't choose him. I couldn't just choose his forgiveness. I could never actually ask him into my heart as I did probably hundreds of times in my childhood. No, he actually put himself there. 
he pursued me, and he gave me his love and forgiveness, which was and still is irresistible. And there's a term during this time that I learned to understand. It's really quite beautiful, and it's foundational. And it's the Father's effectual calling. And in very basic, few words, terms, what it means for us today is that the king never loses a daughter. His grace is irresistible. He gives the spirit that convinces us of our sin and misery and opens us and our hearts, gives us an ability to embrace Jesus. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. It was never about me, and it was never in my terms and my timing. It was always him, the king, pursuing me and protecting me and preserving me in spite of my sinful pursuits. Him bringing me to him in his time. He was such a perfect father. This all hit me so profoundly that without God himself, the king in his love and compassion changing my heart, I hated him and had no ability to choose him over my sin. That he chose me and turned my heart of darkness towards him. And not just that. It wasn't just as simple as that, right? Christ himself, in fact, took the wrath of God for every chalky, sinful, ink, sharpie mark of my life. You see, something entirely perfect had to be sacrificed for me to be seen as holy in God's eyes, I learned. And the only thing that was perfect enough was his son. And he gave that to me. Jesus gave that to me. That is how great the king's love is towards me and how great a love is king's love is towards you. So the father's love for his daughter, he desired me as a daughter, and to have me was very costly. He desired I be his daughter so much that it was his will to sacrifice his perfect sinless son, Jesus, to have me. He pursued me as his daughter. The scripture verse that is so encouraging and reassuring in my life is this in Psalms 103, verse 12. You may have heard this before. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. This truth is so loving because, in fact, it is so costly and so sacrificial in what it represents. You see, there's no magic eraser for our souls. Have you ever seen a magic eraser or used a magic eraser in your kitchen, your bathroom or something? This is not an artist's tool, it's a cleaning tool. And the the artist tools that I did use previously as a picture of sin is in fact a very poor picture. It's a very limited picture really of sin in our lives. And the magic eraser, if you've not used this before, you get it wet, it comes like a sponge, and they are strange. They're really weird, I don't understand them. But they're meant for hard surfaces, and you can rub away at a surface, and it like it'll remove stains off your kitchen countertop. It makes everything look like bright and shining again. It's really weird, and I don't know what it's made of. Hopefully, we don't find out years later it's all killing us. But they're crazy. The magic eraser, right? It probably can even do some work on a sharpie marker. I've never actually tried that. But in our lives. And in scripture, in fact, there's no such tool that's found. A purchase was made, not by you or I at the, at the grocery store, and it 
and it didn't just magically erase all our sins. Nothing in the scripture just magically erases our sins, if we think about it. In fact, it was paid for. And it was paid for to satisfy the just wrath that God had. And it was Jesus himself who paid that cost. It was a transaction that was made. A transaction of his life for mine. And because of that act of love, you and I can be seen as sinless to the king as we are being able to be seen through Jesus. You see, his love as a father provides perfectly and protects. He was my father, my heavenly father, I can see now, was active all those years in my life in protecting me from sin. And I can see that as evidence when he's shown me that over the years and more and more. But then you find yourself at times thinking, okay, I'm forgiven and I'm so thankful. But what about this stuff, these Sharpie marks that are forgiven but yet have left such marks? I can't remove them. I can't remove the memories and thoughts. And God is still faithful and loves his daughter in such an enormous way. He doesn't just redeem me in his eyes. He redeems things that bless me and he redeems my memories, my thoughts. For example, there was a particular day and time that was some silly sentimental thing that this boyfriend had. And, um, you know, it was something like, you know, if you see this time, I'm thinking of you, blah, blah, blah. Right. So like 15 years later, I can walk into a room and I can see the clock and I can see that time. And there's that moment that it registers that that's of some significance. But I can honestly say that the Lord has redeemed that memory, and in that flash of a second, I never give a thought to who this guy was. But it's rather just a sigh of relief in remembering God's goodness to me. I still see that time, but it's God has redeemed that memory and used it for his glory. There's other ways that God has provided in his provision. I could go on and on as you probably could, in ways that God has provided for us. And I hope you can see this since what I have shared with you today. And the last thing that I'd like to share quickly is the duties that we have of such a royal call if we are his daughter, since our daughter's response. One is a mundane faithfulness. It's a word I used earlier to describe my father. And these words stuck with me over the past year or two after coming across them in a blog of the same name. And I think it's a daughter's response that is a good one to the high calling by you've been given to the king. And it's something that's often characterized in the everyday and what we do with it. And a life of mundane faithfulness is a lofty goal worth striving for, I believe. It's the everyday striving after holiness, seeking to be more and more like a father. And it's a natural response that you can see played out and you may have had in your life where we naturally seek to emulate our own earthly fathers. So it is with our king as he is our father. We grow to want to be more and more like him. And it's refined in the everyday, day in and out, day in and day out, mundane faithfulness that we do, we pursue. To say I saw this years, years 
for years in my in both my mom and my dad that it was a sincere faith that spoke volumes and it was in fact a key aspect characteristic that drove me to want what he had those many years ago and as we seek this mundane faithfulness and holiness we're faith have to come face to face with the sin that we must do battle with so the third Second thing for a daughter's response is to do battle with sin. And it's something that we must do as Christians every day. So we as ladies may not naturally seek out battle as I see naturally in my four boys, but we're still called to do a battle. And it's a fierce fight, and it's something that we must do every day, and it's fighting our sin. It's searching it out, identifying it, and calling it what it is, and not growing weary and putting it out of our lives. can be a weary battle. It was a weary battle in, in putting together this talk as I faced um, many you know, years of memories. But it's a good battle, and it's a battle that the king is winning in our life if we are his daughter. And I'm hoping that some of you are able to make it to Erica's breakout session on fighting sin. It's something I hope to um, be able to listen to the recording of. So the last thing I want to leave you with is proclaiming the king's excellencies. And this is the verse that I shared at the beginning, 1 Peter 2.9. But we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He has done a work in me that I've just touched the surface on. And a, rom- a daughter's response, whether it's me or you, to such a fantastic calling of being a daughter of the king himself is to proclaim his excellencies, what he has made us for. And that often requires what it requires of me and it will require of you is to proclaim your and my own unworthiness. The unworthiness that he has pulled me out of, bought me and redeemed me, and brought me into his marvelous life, light, and into his family. So back to the beginning, perhaps there is an inner conflict with the title of Daughter of the King and your sense of unworthiness, and I want to agree with you that yes, you're right. You are unworthy, and I am unworthy. We are undeserving of such a gift that he has given us. But that's the amazing thing. The king then himself calls us worthy. Jesus made us worthy by spilling his own blood. And we now are, in fact, worthy in the king's eyes if he has made us his daughter. And we are no longer allowed to sit around and think we are unworthy because the king himself has made us worthy. So my hope and my prayer is that as we go out from this conference is that you and I are encouraged to remind and remind that the king is our father and that you reflect on how the king of all kings is a perfect father and that you in fact do know him as your father how he has loved you as daughter has he, how he has protected you as a daughter and how he has provided for you as a daughter every day of your life and then go out and respond out of a deep love 
as a daughter of the king of the highest royalty that you're called to. In Christ, you are a daughter of the king and you are royalty. What a great lesson she gave us about how we can live every day in response to our Heavenly Father's pursuit of us. She brought up having mundane faithfulness in our everyday lives. So whether we're doing dishes or driving in our car, tying someone's shoes, filing papers at work, we can be faithful to God in those itty bitty moments. She told us to do battle with the sin that's in our lives, not ignore it, not set it aside, but actually fight it. We've heard that one before on the Unshaken podcast, haven't we? And lastly, she challenged us to proclaim the King's excellency in all that we do. Our Heavenly Father, our King, is an amazing, powerful, all-knowing, and all-seeing God. He is faithful to us when we are not faithful to Him. He loves us when we do not return the love to Him. And I am so thankful that our King in Heaven pursues us and works in our heart and changes us each day. What a great story. Hey, let me pray for us today. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jennifer and her willingness to share her story. I thank you for the pursuit of her father and his love for his daughter. And I thank you that we are all daughters of the King and that you are our King. I thank you for how many times you have pursued us. Help us to remember that you are a God who loves us and cares for us each and every day and help us to respond appropriately. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, next week we're going to be listening to two ladies that I'm going to interview on the topic of scripture memory. I don't know about you, but this one's a hard one for me. I am not good at remembering my grocery list, let alone trying to remember a passage out of the Bible. But we're going to listen to these two women who are faithfully memorizing little chunks of scripture and big chunks of scripture, how they do it, the practical ways they do it, and how that it honors God in their lives. And don't forget to join us for our book chats that drop each Thursday right along with our regularly scheduled episodes. I've been chit-chatting with Erica Simpson on the book, How to Be Free from Bitterness, and it has been fabulous. We have both felt super convicted, but also really encouraged by the work God is doing in our hearts. I think you will love the book as well. And remember, when everything around you is shaken, you can stand unshaken because of our rock and our fortress, because of God. Until next time, 